0: that was going on in Jerusalem, sometimes called the uh, Jerusalem Council, and we'll read down to verse 35. So Acts 15, verse 12, uh, down through 35. Uh, Listen then to the word of God. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, brothers. Listen to me. Uh, Simeon has related uh, how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will remember I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is what we what we should not that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from uh, what has been strangled and from blood. And from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers both, the apostles and the elders to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it was for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain uh, from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well farewell. And when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace uh, by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we just pray that you would work in our hearts here, that you would uh, instruct us from your word, that we would uh, follow your word, that we would obey you and that you would work in us a, a heart of, of unity. And we just pray this and uh, pray that you would guide my words, pray that your word would uh, teach us and encourage us as well. We pray this, uh, in your name. Uh, amen. I don't know if you've ever been in situations, maybe at your job or maybe with your family where there is tension, where, where trouble is, is stirred up, where people are, are on the edge of their seat in, in anxiety and they're worked up over a particular issue. But it can be very hard to calm people down. Uh, when everyone gets worked up, when there's there's some sort of pressing issue and it's dividing a group and one side has this opinion and another side has this opinion and perhaps there's even a third or a, a fourth side and there's there's a bit of butting of heads. And and when it's over a serious matter, it can cause grave concern It can also be a very difficult task to step into those situations. And try to bring everybody back together to try to put uh, everybody on the same page. If you've ever had that sort of situation at work or you've ever had a situation where you've had to resolve a fight between two of your close friends, you know how hard it can be to listen to everybody and try to make peace. We're in a section of scripture where the, the local body or the, the local churches spread throughout the region of, of lower what would now be modern day Turkey, down uh, the coast of the Mediterranean towards Israel. All of these churches have gotten themselves in a bit of an uproar. Uh, they've been stirred up. If you'll remember a few weeks ago, people had come to them saying, unless you are circumcised, according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And there were some saying, well, wait a minute, we have already been saved. What are you talking about? And it created no small disturbance among the people of God. Our main point this morning in this passage of Scripture is simply that church unity is preserved. We want to walk through this passage and see what is it that brings the church back together and they get all on the same page. And how do we learn from that? How do we, as a a body that gathers together, that we all have different life experiences, we all have different backgrounds, maybe even on some things we all have different opinions. Uh, Not everyone likes mint chocolate chip ice cream. Uh, I do. Some of you might not. Not everybody likes Star Trek. That's I'll I'll forgive you for that. But how do we how do we gather and be I'm just kidding with that, by the way. But how do we how do we gather and be unified? Where does unity come from? Obviously, it does not come on those things that I just mentioned. But it's so important that the church love one another and be gathered in unity. So church unity is preserved first this morning. Church unity is preserved when we realize God has always intended to save people from every nation doesn't matter where you're from, what your background is, what your ethnic background is, where you grew up, what, what it was like in your home growing up. God has planned before the foundations of the world that people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation would come and find salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the common unity that we have is a unity around Jesus, a unity in salvation. And if we are going to preserve unity and if we are even going to persevere in unity, it comes from Jesus Christ and knowing what he has done. So, in salvation, God takes people to bear His name. Look at verses 13 and 14. After they finished speaking, uh, this is, uh, B- Paul and Barnabas, uh, who had been speaking and telling what the signs that God's were working and are saying, look, the Gentiles really are getting saved. We've seen it with our own eyes, verse 12. Verse 13, after they had finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. You have to sort of understand what is, what is going on here. In the Old Testament, who are the people that bear the name of the Lord? Who are the people that represent God and are His children? It's Israel. They are a, a chosen nation for the plan and purpose of God to be God's representatives to the whole world. But now, they're saying, but God is, is putting His name in the hearts of, of Gentiles. This is pagans. People who had walked after foreign gods. People who wanted nothing to do with God. And God is saving them. And, and He's in a symbolic sense putting His name on them. They are God's people. They now belong to Him. And then James says that that God is actually keeping His promises. That God had done this as a promise to to David in raising up Jesus. Look at verse 15 and 16. And with these words, and, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. Meaning, he says, God has visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And then he says with this, with this God taking people for his name with this. The prophets agree just as it is written. And I and after this, I will return and I will build up the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And we'll stop halfway through this prophecy because I want to explain what that is there. Uh, Verses 16 and 17 are a quote from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. Amos is in the minor prophets. The minor prophets are in the Old Testament. It kind of falls midway between Psalms and where the New Testament is. And Amos is one of those smaller books that we probably don't read very often. But it's, it's God's Word. And it has stuff in there for us. And it has prophecies about what God would do. And God uh, tells how they're going to go into exile. They're going to go into the land of Babylon. And that happens in the book of Daniel. We see some of those things being fulfilled. And then God lays out a further promise and he says there will come a day or or in that day, I will raise up the booth or or that tent of David that has fallen. So God had made uh, hundreds of years before he had made David the king in Israel. And God made a promise to David. And he says, you will always have a king on the throne. You will have a a future king who reigns forever. And so David has the son Solomon and Solomon has a son Rehoboam. And we go on down and we get multiple kings. And then Israel gets destroyed. Jerusalem gets torn down. And there is no king on the throne. And at various places in the Scriptures, in the Psalms, and some other places, the prophets lament this. They, they are weeping and crying and they are begging God, are you going to keep your Word? Are you going to fulfill your promise? And God says, yes. Yes, I will send the Messiah, which means the Anointed One, a, a descendant of David. And He will be the King. That is Jesus. So when it says, I will raise up the booth of David that is the fallen and repair it and its breaches and it will raise up its ruins and build it as the days of old. This is talking about Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter saying this, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ and that he was not abandoned into Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And Peter says, this is what we've witnessed, the resurrection. And then he says, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received The promise of the Holy Spirit He has poured this out with you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying that in Jesus dying on the cross, rising again from the dead, and now in his human resurrected body, Jesus is alive. And he goes back up into heaven. And God says to him, sit down at my right hand. God is this king with this glorious throne. And in Scripture, it's described as if a robe of glory just trails down below. And Jesus, or God says to Jesus, sit here next to me. Now, God can say that to Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God. But Jesus sitting down on the throne, ruling over all creation, is a fulfillment of these promises God made to David. When will Jesus die again? The answer is never. So how long will Jesus reign? The answer is forever. God made that promise to David that you would have an heir and he will always reign and he kept it in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is crucial. Who is Jesus now? He is the Lord and Savior and he saves all who come to him and believe in him. But why is that important for the argument that James is making? Because the disciples know that Jesus has rose from the dead and ascended. But in the book of Amos, along with God doing that is the promise that other nations, foreigners, pagans will come and receive salvation. So if you read Amos chapter 9... Verse 11 says this in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as of the days of old. And then verse 12, that they may possess a remnant of Edom, which Edom is a a pagan nation that had had attacked Israel at various times. And now it's saying there's going to be a remnant of people that come for salvation. And then it says, and all the nations who are called by My name, declares the Lord who does this. Which is exactly the part of the verse that that, Peter, uh, that James quotes in verse 17. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and that all the Gentiles who are called by My name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. What James is saying is what we see in that prophecy is what has happened now. Jesus has been put on the throne. The, the house of David, this, this tent, if you'll picture someone pick, pick, uh, pitching their tent, it's like a king setting up shop, if you will. David's son, uh, through the earthly line, is on the throne. It's Jesus. And He's reigning. And He's ruling. And, and it's almost like saying, why are you surprised that people are getting saved? Why are you surprised especially that gentiles are getting saved? Gentiles are are again people outside of the physical line of Israel, non-Jewish people, but but gentiles by and large are all pagan. They they are going down to the temple and offering sacrifices to to Zeus and to Apollo and Aphrodite and all of these other gods. And all of a sudden in what God is doing is People are turning away from these foreign gods and they're coming and worshiping God. And James says, duh, that's what God promised. Okay, duh isn't in the original Hebrew or Greek, but but it's that is God's promise. Why are we surprised? Why are we surprised today when God keeps his word? God is a God who keeps His Word. And God is a God who promises to show mercy on those who will turn to Him. There are a couple other passages. There, actually, there's a whole bunch of passages that talk about uh, the nations coming before the Lord. Uh, there's a number of them in the Psalms. The hope that God has is not only that Israel will worship God, but that everybody, people from everywhere around the world will worship God. You, you see this in the great throne room scene in, in Revelation uh, chapter 4 and 5 people from every tongue tribe and nation. You have a specific prophecy in Jeremiah 12:16 that that there shall be in the midst of the people of Israel in the midst of believers there shall be gentiles who used to swear by Baal. Uh Zechariah chapter 2 verse verse 10 and 11 that God will dwell in their midst and it also says then and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And James reminds us, God told us all of this hundreds of years before it took place. Isaiah says that God is a God who declares the ends from the beginning. that There is no other God beside him, a righteous God, a Savior, none beside him. Who declares these things from old and causes them to come to pass? The real God, the God of the Bible, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the God who does these things. Not only does he declare what's going to happen, he is the one that that causes it to happen. So that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, That whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me take note here for just a second when you look at the verses in Amos and the fulfillment. When God is working out His plan, He does not start with plan A. And then when that doesn't work, switch over to plan B. His plan has always been that the nations and the Gentiles get saved. That there are people outside of Israel who come and experience who God is. And they become part of the one great family that God is building. It's a wonderful time in the plan of God. It's important then when we as a church think about church unity. What exactly is the church? We're not a social club. We're not a let's all get together and hang out on, on Sundays. I'm sure there's other stuff. that If, if we were just here for, for fun, I'm sure there's other stuff that we could do. We're not an ice cream club. A lot of us around here like coffee, but we're not a coffee club. We're not a religious group per se. That We have a whole bunch of rules and regulations and secret codes and club language. We are people who the Lord has saved and has made us part of His family. The church is the body of Christ. It's the people of God who, in light of God fulfilling His plan and and sending Jesus, it's the people of God who have believed in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The church is God's people and it's composed of people from everywhere. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you're from. We bear God's name. That's what it says. That we are bearing the name of God. We are God's children and we are in a sense His representatives here on earth. Where does church unity come from? It comes from the work of God. It comes from God making us His children. And so if we're going to work towards unity, if we're going to be more unified with one another, it's going to come from keeping our eyes on the goal. Our goal is to glorify God and be a good representative of Him. When we have our eyes on that, all of the little things that can cause tension, you know, do I like the color of the curtains? Do I not like the color of the curtains? Was the music too loud today or was it just right? Did I know this song? Did I not know this song? Was the coffee overdone this morning or was it not? All of those things, will brush away to the side. Even sometimes things that are are of some importance, when we have our eyes on God, it won't be the most important thing. The most important thing comes from God and knowing who He is. Second this morning, a church in unity will recognize God requires obedience from Christians who've received Jesus. So, So out of this, so part of the tensions that are arising is how do we follow God? How can we all be on the same page? You have these these Jewish people and they are used to taking the whole Old Testament and following it zealously. Don't eat unclean food. Don't sit down with unpure Gentiles. Don't uh, do this. Make sure you take your sacrifices up to the temple. All of these these customs and laws that God had given... Uh, to Moses at Mount Sinai. And they are used to doing it. And then they get together and there's Gentiles that are now Christians. Who have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they don't know any of it. None. I mean, they're just happy that they're not going down to the, the pagan idol temple anymore. That's a big change for them. And And in that culture... There was a lot of trade deals and stuff that would go on metal workers and stuff would often get get contracts to build things for for idols or that's where you would make your business deals down at the temple. And so if you are, say, like a metal worker, you stopping worshiping those idols can also mean my business is taking a hit. So so in a sense, it's like, wow, I'm already sacrificing to be here. And now we got to start getting along with everybody, people who have. Have literally hated each other for for years, are now coming together and having to get along in 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 the church family. It would kind of be like in in um, Romeo and Juliet, the two families that fight suddenly having to worship together, uh, or you know the families that fight in American history at the O.K. Corral. Uh, what is Doc Holliday and the the other? Yeah I mean imagine them just sitting down and breaking bread and taking communion together. Imagine the tension in the room. I mean that's what it would be like. We all got to get along. And and some of these Jewish believers are saying, "Well, if you Gentiles really want to fit in around here, if you really want to display that you're saved, you better start doing all the Old Testament law." And it's creating this stirred up problem. What do you mean? We are saved. We're believers. We're Christians. We belong to God. How do you handle that? How do you break it down? James and the church hold the line then that salvation is by faith alone. Look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He said, uh, Peter has said in verse 10, Now, therefore, why are you putting, uh, putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples neither, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Acts 5.15, some of the believers who were Pharisees were saying it is necessary to, be circumc- to circumcise them in, uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. James says, we're not going to put that kind of burden on you. There is so much in the Old Testament law that it was meant to be ceremonies. It was meant to be symbols for, for what Jesus would come and do and fulfill and complete. We don't need to put that kind of heavy burden. Peter has says these Gentiles were saved the same way that we are by believing in Jesus. That being said, the believer, us as Christians, we do have moral responsibilities, if I can put it that way. There are things as a Christian you should do and things as a Christian you shouldn't do. How you live your life is not... What gets you saved. You're saved by believing in Jesus. But if you belong to Jesus, if there is a a transformation in your life, over time, your behavior will change because you love God and you want to represent God and, and you want to obey God because you know that God tells you what's best. Last week, I opened with the story of a Uh, A young boy, uh, not a young boy, a teenager who asked me when I was a camp counselor, do I have to give up marijuana to be saved? The answer to that, and I don't know that I spelled the I tried to spell the answer out, but I never came back to the the illustration at the end. And the answer to that is no, you don't have to give up marijuana to be saved. The only thing you have to do to be saved is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the other side of that answer, and what I, what I told this boy, is that when, when we are saved, there is a change in us. There should be a, a changing set of desires now. We love God and not the, the other things that we were stuck in and that we did as sins. And so just for the very fact that, that marijuana is illegal, if you're, a, if you're a believer, part of walking in faithfulness is, is getting rid of these things in your life. And I realize it can be a struggle, and the Scripture teaches us how to, to handle struggle with sins and, and those sorts of things. But, but the point is this, to be saved, we believe in Jesus out of salvation, experiencing the joy of it, the blessings of it, and the working of God in our life, it does lead to a change in our lives. Just like if you put a plant in the ground and you feed it and you water it, it will grow fruit. God has planted a seed in you and you are saved. But as He waters that, it will grow and it will blossom and it will bear fruit. And so they can say to these disciples, there are some things you need to worry about or look at in your conduct because you want to bear fruit. You want to blossom. So three things that are highlighted here. First, do not participate in things that are idolatrous. Look at verse 20 and also 29. But, James is saying, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. And so then in verse 29, when they actually write the letter, they say that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. Paul writing in First Corinthians chapter 20 says this. No, I am. I I tell you what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to participate with demons. Demons. So on the one hand, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 says there isn't a problem with the food per se. Food is just food. And, and they would often take food and offer it to the idols and then they would take it back to the market and they would sell it. Is a Christian allowed to eat those things is, is what the, uh, Paul is wrestling with. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, six, 8, 8, food will not commend us to God. And we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off. If we do, but Paul also says, don't be party to the participation in the food and the cup of demons, meaning don't go into that idol temple. Don't sit down and say to yourself, well, I'm just getting a cheap meal. You are you are gathering in a place of worship where people are worshiping false gods don't eat meat there that's sacrificed to idols. Paul will say later on in, in 1 Corinthians 10, you know, if you're over at somebody's house and they bring you out some food and they put it before you, he says, just eat and don't worry about it. But if they bring you out food and they say, this food has been sacrificed before idols, won't you partake of it with us? Paul says, for the sake of conscience, don't eat that. And he says, not so much for your conscience, but for the unbeliever's conscience. Can you imagine if you were gathering at someone's house and they bring out this food to you and they say, we got this worshiping Zeus. And we want you to enjoy the worship of Zeus with us. Gather around our table. Eat this food. On the one hand, a Christian can just say, well, you know, it's just food. On the other hand, They are imploring you to take part in in something that might symbolize that you're worshiping something false. Don't do it. Paul says to these believers, don't be party to idol worship. Acts says to these Gentiles, you've left that life. You've turned to the living God. Don't go back to celebrating and and eating meat sacrificed to idols so that people might get confused and think, well, aren't they a Christian? I just saw them down in the pagan temple the other day. Separate yourself. Be clear that you stand for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.14 Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Where do we find idolatry in our day and age? Where do we find idolatry in our day and age? Well, thankfully, there's not like a pagan temple to Apollo down in York, at least not one that I know of. But there still is idolatry. There still is people worshiping false gods. There still is people making things in their life more important than God, which is by definition what an idol does. Two areas in life that we have idolatry I think here in our country first we have a concept of God that is sometimes called deist deism is this idea of God he's just unattached nothing specific kind of the people that call God you know the big guy upstairs he's there sometimes I think and I, I don't want to be really careful because it is Memorial Day and it's, it's a really special time but sometimes I think when people say God bless America they don't really know who God is he's just this guy that if we say nice things he's going to do good things for us is sort of the thinking that sometimes people have and do I want God to bless America yes but if that's going to happen people have to be getting saved and and turning to God and and repenting sometimes you will run into people that, that think they're believers yeah of course I believe in God and they will say on these precious holidays oh, God, God bless America. But do they know the living and true God who sent his son Jesus to die for them? We need to be really careful about that. When we say God, we are speaking about someone very specific who is the living and true God who sent his son and his son died and rose again and rules over all things. So you go to a NASCAR race, maybe. And I'm not trying to pick on NASCAR, but it's the sport that comes to my mind because they always pray before the race, which is great. But are they praying to the living and true God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die? I did hear a pastor one time who did do that. He prayed, and he prayed in the name of Jesus. But it happens in our country. It happens in our legislators. Where they offer generic prayers to God. That can be idolatry. Second form of idolatry in our day and age is, is the sort of spirituality that's out there that denies God is a, a personal God. You know, nature is sort of a goddess and you can commune with the goddess or find the God within yourself. It's a very self-help approach to to knowing God and worshiping. And they don't mean God in the same way that we do. And so even in in the church now, we have to be careful when, when we talk about what prayer is. Because people are, are starting to mix prayer, which is talking to God and asking God for things, with an idea of, of meditation that comes out of Eastern religion, where it's you sit there and you empty your mind and you try to touch the divine with your emotions or your, your spiritual self. That is not biblical. And, and to start to move into that and dabble in that and then want to call it prayer or, or want to call it, I'm, I'm hearing God speak in my life, is, is moving away from the Bible. The Bible is where God speaks. And I can talk to God in prayer, absolutely. But flee idolatry. I guess what I'm trying to say too is, is don't be so naive that, that we don't think the culture around us, the world around us, the unbeliever around us has idols. They might not have a statue that they erect and ask you to bow down to. But there is still idolatry in our world. Second exhortation or commandment they give them is do not engage in sexual immorality. Look at verse 20 again. But you shall write them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled from blood. And you shall abstain from what verse 29 and you shall abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. This is all over the pages of Scripture. Revelation, chapter two, verse 14. Jesus says to the church, but a few things I have against you that that some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to be a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, and so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Revelation twenty twenty, 20, speaking to a church. This I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. It's interesting that in this culture, in the world around them at the time, Often, idol worship and, and sex went hand in hand. You could, go down to the, uh, you could go down to the temple, worship your idol, and also get a prostitute. Uh, their forms of worship involved sex. I'm not trying to be gross or, or, or gory or say too much that's inappropriate, but, but worshiping false gods went together with practicing A plan outside of God's design for human sexuality. God has designed men and women to get married and to enjoy uh, sexual union within marriage and have all the blessings within a safe covenant between a man and a wife. And so one of the quickest ways to rebel against God when you're worshiping other gods is to say, hey, I'm going to just not follow God's law in these things. I'm just going to have sex indiscriminately in Israel's history when she made the golden calf remember Moses is up on mount sinai and and they come before Aaron and they say Moses has been gone make us an idol so that we can worship and when they start to worship that idol it says the children of Israel got up to play it doesn't mean like your kids playing with legos it's it's a figure of speech they engaged in, in immoral sex. And God punished them for it. In our day and age, we might not have the physical idols, but sex becomes a form of idolatry as we rebel against God. Scripture says this in First Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Today, especially today. We need to be on our guard. We need to to be on our guards against sexual immorality. It can happen in our churches. And, And if you stumble into this or you fall into this, there is complete and absolute forgiveness from God in it. But we also need to guard ourselves. Husbands and wives in your marriage, guard yourselves. Single people, guard yourselves. Sexual immorality takes place in all kinds of forms and all kinds of ways. And I don't need to go into the specifics. You know what they are. But be on your guard. Be on your guard against even the culture that, that puts images before us or tempts us with, with pornography on the Internet. Because it can lead us into, not only that is a sin, but it can lead us into greater sins. Of sexual immorality it 's wrong, and if you 're struggling with it in some way, come and get help and receive forgiveness and and know the blessings that God has for you by following His word. We cannot be a church that 's unified if there is some sort of anti biblical sexual ethic and it 's accepted and promoted in the church now thankfully that 's not something particularly. that that our church has struggled with in terms of promoting things that are blatantly against scripture. But it's been interesting to me. I I have a Facebook friend uh, who's in another denomination and they're, they're kind of liberal. Well, they're not kind of liberal. They are liberal and they're dealing with these issues of, of should we ordain homosexuals? Should we allow homosexuality? Should we, uh, you know, allow uh, sex outside of marriage, all of these things. And the big push, they just had their, their, annual or semi-annual conference and the big push was we need to be unified. But you can't be unified if you're not willing to follow what Scripture says and do it together. Unity comes from God. And unity comes from walking in God's Word. And then lastly, it's the prohibition against uh, blood and the strangling. I think the primary issue with With this here is is two parts. One, oftentimes meat that had blood in it was the meat that came out of of the pagan temples. Uh, So there's, I think, an association with idolatry here that's going on. In in other words, what I'm saying to you is is if you grill something this weekend for Memorial Day and you like your steak rare uh, or medium rare, you're not violating this here. This is this is not you're not breaking this command. We're not going to put you up on church discipline, you know, and test your, your hamburgers is is all the blood out of it. If you're, you know, from a place like Scotland and you like blood sausage, you know, you're not violating the word of God. The other, I think, aspect here going on is this concern for how do we live in unity? And and it would have been very hard for Jewish believers to sit down at a table And the Gentile brings in his meat and they're realizing it still has blood in it. But all over the Old Testament, we were told not to do this. And so part of this is is how do we practically keep peace in the body? Don't offend fellow believers, they're, they're saying, by eating this meat with blood in it, particularly for those in the Jews who have weak consciences. The last thing I want you to notice is What does this do for the life of the church? There is a joy when we come together and follow the Lord together. And so this actually solves the problems. Look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders and with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch and with Paul and Barnabas and send Judas, who is called Barsabbas and Silas, leading among the brothers. Verse 23 with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders and the brothers who are Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicily greetings. Since we have heard that that some have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettled your minds. And he although we gave them no instruction, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent. Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you of the same things by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from food that has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Well, farewell. Then it says in verse 30. And so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This encouraged the whole church body. You see, a, a problem arose, but the church leaders faithfully going back to Scripture dealt with it. They kept the unity of the body by asking, what does God say? How do we know these Gentiles are really saved? Well, look at what God is doing and look at what Scripture says. This is a fulfillment of Scripture. And then they acknowledged what was going on in this letter. They didn't just say, oh, you silly Gentiles who are getting worked up over nothing. They said, you know, we realize these people came from Jerusalem and they probably made it sound like they were coming from us. But we didn't tell them to go and say this. But we want you to know, we want you to understand, we, we understand why this uh, problem arose, why you're torn up over this, why you're worked up and upset. And we want you to know you are our brothers and sisters, and this is the solution the Lord has led us to. And it encourages the believers. And a couple of reasons. One, it encourages the believers because they are standing on the gospel we're going to build unity, it comes from standing on the gospel. It encourages the believers because it displays compassion over what happens. The elders and the leaders, when there's trouble that arises, need to respond with compassion, understanding of, as to why people were so worked out. It creates encouragement because it doesn't place weighty demands on the people says, it seems good to us and to the the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements. It marked God's people then as unified. Be encouraged today. I think in the life of our church, as we see people who have been coming and gathering and we've been growing, there's just been a great spirit of unity. But if that's going to continue, that's not going to come because we add a whole bunch of extra rules. Nobody's going to say, well, you all have to wear bow ties on Sundays because that's what good Christians look like. If you don't dress up, if you if you don't wear a suit, you're not a good Christian. If you if you dye your hair some funky color, well, you know, you're not taking God seriously. Or if you have piercings or too many piercings above a certain number. Well, maybe you're not a strong Christian. That isn't where unity comes from. And to make those kinds of rules and put those kinds of things into place, that becomes legalism. You're not a good Christian unless you do X, Y, Z. That's not really prescribed in the Bible. Unity comes from the gospel and it comes from following God's word. Don't get trapped in idols. Don't get trapped by sexual immorality. Cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this day and ask that you would work in our hearts, work in our lives, build in us a a spirit of of unity that we can be unified as Christians because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can come into your presence in, in a sense just as we are having been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins being forgiven. But you receiving us regardless of what we look like on the outside, because you have cleansed our hearts. We praise you for this. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a closing song this morning. The worship team will come and lead us.